0: and pastor jeff is going to share a message with us from god's word but first to read god's word is j
1: our reading today is from our reading today is from luke chapter 2 verse 1 to 15 in those days a decree went out from caesar augustus that all the world should be registered this was the first registration And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The Shepherds and the Angels And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. And you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude in the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Good morning, Grace Toronto Church, and good morning to all of our visitors joining us on the live stream today. This is a time when we need hope. And I think in this text, God is pointing you, he's pointing us where to find it. He's pointing us with the manger. This is not supposed to be a cute story. It's not supposed to be a sentimental story. This is a story that's for grieving people in a dark time, and it's pointing you to a new power that has broken into the world. It's the power that is in the infant Jesus Christ, descended of David, the King of Israel. There's two things we're going to see as we sit with this text this morning. He is the promised king. And second, he is the savior king. First, the promised king. In verse 1, you see the Roman Empire cast a long shadow over Galilee and Judah. Caesar Augustus, the greatest emperor of Rome, the great empire. His territory covers Western Europe Northern Africa, the Balkans, all of modern Turkey, the Middle East, it's a vast domain. Caesar is a powerful man. That's clear in this text. But here's what else Luke shows you. What you see in this text is that the Emperor of Rome is a servant in God's plan. Caesar gives a decree. And as a result of that decree, the details of Jesus' birth match the promise that God made long before. The Messiah is born in Bethlehem, just as God promised. Here's how that happened. In Rome, Caesar Augustus decides to carry out a census, and it's empire-wide, his whole domain He wants to know the income, the property, the wealth of all the people so that he can tax them accordingly. And far from Rome, there's a province called Palestine. That makes up the modern area of Israel today. Inside that province of Palestine, there's a town called Nazareth. Inside that town, there is one family Joseph and Mary. And Mary is pregnant. She is full term. And they hear the news. They have to go. Now, centuries before all of this, God made a promise to one ancestor of Joseph. Joseph's ancestor was named David. And David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. But here's what God promised to David God promised David that an, a greater king would come from his line. And that king to come would reign forever. Forever, God said. In the centuries following David's life, the prophets, the prophets of God, they spoke, they fleshed out that promise, they added to it, they clarified it. And here's what one prophet Said the prophet Micah in the years 700s BC. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who were too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord. His God. This is what God promised. The King to come, the Messiah, will stand. That means he will endure forever. He'll shepherd God's people, he will meet their every need. He will reign in the strength of the Lord, not through oppression, not through deceit. His kingdom will grow to the ends of the earth and this king will come from Bethlehem. Caesar gives a decree, and that decree causes the details of Jesus' birth to match God's promise, just as God said. God is unfolding his plan to restore and to heal the world through his son, Jesus Christ, and God can use the Roman emperor to further his plan. God can do that because God is the architect of history. Now, what does all of that have to do with you? A great deal, in fact. God is the architect of history, and if you embrace that in your worldview, it will radically alter how you see your own life and your place in the world. What's more, it will radically alter how you understand suffering. Consider Joseph and Mary. They both suffered, and that's not too hard to see here. They had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and that's like walking from Toronto to Barrie. And then you go 50 more kilometers to Aurelia. And Mary is pregnant. She's full term, and she goes on this journey. Somehow, I don't know how, text, somehow they finally arrive in Bethlehem, and they have the stress of labor and delivery. Or rather, Mary has the stress of labor and delivery, right? And she's away from home, away from all the supports in this new environment with strangers around. And this is her first. She's never done this before. They suffer. And they don't have the big picture the way that we do when we read Luke's gospel. But see this. Regardless of what they know, God is working through their lives to unfold his plan. In fact, through their suffering, God's grace comes into the world. But that's not just true for Joseph and Mary. If you follow Jesus, God has called you into his plan. And the calling of God is in the shape of your life. Your gifts your skills, your opportunities, all these things, all these parts of your life and your suffering, and your suffering, the things that you would never choose to come into your life, the secret grief, the open loss, that thing is not irrelevant to God's, calling in your life. It's very much a part of God's plan. The question that we often ask ourselves is why? And how is this a part of God's plan? There's a proverb in the Old Testament that says this, A person's steps are directed by the Lord. How then can anyone understand their own way? How can anyone understand their own way? We don't understand many things that come into our way. We don't understand the suffering that comes into our lives. And any reason that you could think of and any reason that A well intentioned person might say, This feels like holding a candle in a downpour. That reason doesn't satisfy. Tim Challies is the name of a pastor and a blog writer based in Toronto. On November 3rd, 2020, his son Nick died. He was playing sports on his campus in Louisville, Kentucky, and he collapsed without warning. And the causes of his death remain unknown. Tim Challies wrote this in his blog posted on Friday just two days ago. How are you doing? I've been asked that question countless times since my son went to be with the Lord. I never really know how to answer it. While at that exact moment I might be doing okay, it's possible that 15 minutes prior I was so overwhelmed with sorrow I could barely stand. Truly, the sorrow is not beyond description, but also beyond my own comprehension. Yet, I'm confident there is one who understands. What I cannot. God reveals himself as the good Father who searches and knows the deepest recesses of my heart. His Son is the man of sorrows who is acquainted with grief and who can sympathize with me in my every weakness. He ends with these words So I press on, singing in the dark. With the the lamp of the Lord shining the way. Despite the pain, despite the sorrow, despite the loss, my life goes on, must go on. I haven't received an exemption clause that frees me from what God has called me to. I'm still a parent, still a husband, still an elder, still a friend, still a neighbor. While Nick may have been taken, I have been left. While his race may be complete, mine continues. This loss has scarred me, but it does not define me. Life must still be lived. And by God's grace, life is lived. Your life, my friend. You walk by faith and not by sight there are many things you do not understand and God has not given you to understand them but you walk in trust that nothing in your life is meaningless none of your grief or your loss is meaningless that was true for Joseph and Mary it's true for you also. If you're exploring the Christian faith, if you're not a Christian and you're listening in, I want to invite you to consider this. This is the hope that's open to you. In Christian faith, God offers to you a meaning in life that suffering cannot take away. Because this is why God's plan is to exalt Jesus Christ. And it's to bring people to resemble Jesus Christ more and more. That is his goal for every Christian man and woman. And you see, suffering cannot derail that plan. Suffering cannot break that meaning. In fact, suffering sends you deeper into that meaning. It brings a Christian to depend on God more deeply. Do you hear that in Tim Challey's words that he wrote? This is what's available to you in the Christian faith. It is a meaning in life that suffering cannot take away, based in the plan of God, his certain plan. Second, the Savior King... And we move here into the, the second scene in the passage. During the nighttime in the fields outside Bethlehem, an angel appears to the shepherds. And the angel says, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This is the good news Unto you is born a Savior. And that title is significant, a Savior. It's significant for every, every ancient person who read the Gospel of Luke. If that reader was Jewish, when they hear the word Savior, what comes to mind is one of the great kings of Israel or one of the judges, the champion And deliverer, or God Himself, because in the Psalms and Prophets, God is called the Savior of Israel. If that reader is a Gentile, when they hear Savior, they think of somebody like Julius Caesar. He had this inscription below his image the common Savior of human life. And his image was published all over the empire. For both Jews and Gentiles, the Savior is someone who deserves the attention, all the praise, the gratitude of the whole nation for what they've done. You see, the Savior is not someone who just gives you a ticket to heaven when you die. The Savior is the one who transforms the fate of the whole nation It's good news for all the people. And I think as human beings, we love this kind of story. This is the very best kind of story. I was surprised to learn this out of the top ten highest grossing films in the history of film. Only one of them is a love story. That's Titanic. All the rest, the other nine films are all action films, including all four of the Avengers and Black Panther. And the highest-grossing movie of all time, this is a record that was set just last year, the highest-grossing movie is Avengers Endgame. In the domestic box office, it made over $850 million in the United States, globally. The box office brought in 2.8 billion dollars, one movie. What's the kind of movie that people want to see? It's not the film where people kind of discover themselves. It's not a nuanced drama. No, the, the kind of film that people want to see, apparently, is the one with rising darkness and with heroes and global stakes. Marvel does all of that. And no matter what you think about these movies, whether you like them or not, um, the Marvel Universe is unbelievably popular, not just in the West, globally, globally. Now, for any of the Marvel stories, there's always the origin story, right? This is Thor 1, this is Iron Man 1. And the origin story lays out all the themes of that hero's life. The things that happen in the origin are character-defining. Now, here's the origin story of Jesus Christ. And what do you see? Who's there? Angels and shepherds. Now, the angels make sense. Right, This is God's son. This is the, the royal son. Come into the world. Angels praise him. Of course, of course they do. But why the shepherds? Shepherds were poor. The shepherds smell like animals. They had a reputation for petty theft in the ancient world. Why these men? Why are they there? Well, Luke doesn't say why. But when you read the rest of Luke's gospel, there's a theme, and it's this. Salvation means reversal. I mean that Jesus, the king, Jesus brings the kingdom of God into the world, and the kingdom brings a status reversal. Generally speaking, in the gospel account, it's the poor who take an interest in Jesus. The poor are welcomed and blessed in his presence. The poor hang on to Jesus' every word. He came to bring good news for them. In general, the rich are not so interested in Jesus. That's the wealthy, the religious elite, the powerful The people of high reputation. They're not so interested. And Jesus, in fact, pronounced woe upon them. Woe to you. Woe to you who are so full of the good things of this life that you have no interest in the kingdom. Woe to you. How terrible. But blessed are the poor. The shepherds are welcomed. Into the arrival of Jesus Christ in the world. How fitting. The poor give Jesus the royal welcome. In the context of the whole Bible, the word poor doesn't just mean financially poor, as you look throughout how that's used across the Old Testament, it means those who depend on God out of a lack of resources. Now, the people who do that, the people who depend on God, are often the financially poor, but not always. The circle is broader than that. Because here's another aspect of salvation. Here's another reversal. It reverses not just worldly status, but spiritual status as well. The proud and the self-confident are excluded The ones who draw near are the humble. They're the unworthy, the undeserving, and they know it. Those people are the ones that Jesus welcomes. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, he says. And that's because Jesus is the shepherd king. He's descended from David the shepherd king of Israel, but Jesus is greater. David defended Israel against its physical enemies. Jesus, as the greater shepherd king, came to shepherd his people through the valley of sin and death. He came to shepherd his people through the gates of eternal life into the kingdom of God. The new heavens and the new earth. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And that is what Jesus did. He lay down his life for the sheep, because on the cross the shepherd became like a lamb. He accepted the sin and the evil of his people upon himself and he died before God as the substitute sacrifice for their sin. Jesus came to bring salvation. The way he did that was to purchase forgiveness of sins through the cross. This is the good news for everyone. All these themes are there in the origin story to be fulfilled in his life. It's good news for everyone. Jesus came for everyone. But notice this. Notice who benefits from this good news. Listen to what the angels say, the angelic host praising, praising God. They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he's pleased. Peace among those with whom he's pleased. The implication of those words is this. God's peace, which is offered to all people, is not upon all people. Jesus came for all people, but not all people benefit from his coming. The reason for that is not all people believe they need to be saved. Not all people see themselves as morally destitute. Not all people humble themselves before God. And therefore, not all people know peace with God. If you are not a Christian, I'm very glad to say that God's peace is open to you today. The way you enter that peace is this. One, you consider your need for forgiveness. You consider that you've been running your own life and making a tidy mess of things. Is that true? How does that play out in your circumstances in your relationships? I wonder. You consider those things and find a Christian friend and talk with them about those things. Ask your friend to pray for you. Two, you consider the person of Jesus. Is not Jesus the very kind of king that you would want? Look at his birth humble lying in a manger look at how the poor and the outcast are welcome to his royal birth he, this is true majesty, this is true royal dignity, it is so secure, there, there is no concern for all the outward trappings of royalty, the shiny objects, all those things no concern So great is Jesus' majesty. And he was not born into the world's power structures, you see. He came to flip the table on the world's power structures. He came to raise up the poor. He came to seek and to forgive the lost and to receive them into his presence. You consider those things. You talk with your Christian friend about those things. Ask them to pray for you, to understand those things. And when you're ready, you pray. And in your prayer, you confess to God the sin that's in your life. You confess your need for Jesus. And you ask Jesus to come into your life and to be your shepherd king your Savior King. If you are a Christian, this peace is already yours. Rejoice. You carry in your heart the good news of great joy that's for all the people. Rejoice. And you count it all joy through every trial. God has his hand upon your life. He directs your steps, even though you do not understand them. Even though you do not understand where he leads you, he leads you. He is in control. He is your savior king, your shepherd king. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for announcing to us this good news of great joy. You know, Father, that we need a hope that goes beyond the things of this material world. And we thank you that you have supplied that hope in Jesus Christ. At this time, especially at this time, Father, and more than ever, let us reach. For this hope that you have placed within our grasp, that you have brought to us. Let us hold it fast and cherish it and walk in these days ahead with the certain knowledge of your presence and of your peace. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, at this part of our service, we have some time for questions. And so I'm going to take out the Q&A phone and see if there are... Yes, there are. Very good. Okay. Okay, I got two questions here. Uh, Okay, here's the first one. Why is there so very little recorded about Mary, Joseph, and Jesus throughout Jesus' childhood, adolescence and adulthood? That's a great question. And I think it's reflective of a gap between how the life of an important person is written in the ancient world compared to how a modern biography is written. If if you if you take a modern biography, um, the childhood is 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 often is often given great attention. Um, it's often very detailed. It's often highly researched and so forth. And that that level of concern and interest in the in the in the childhood of a of a great figure is, generally speaking, not not one that was the same in the ancient world. Um, God hasn't left us without um, any knowledge of of Jesus' early life. We have it here. Uh, We have it later in Luke, a few paragraphs later, in the visitation that Jesus um, and his family make to the temple in Jerusalem, and Jesus was just a boy. But there's a a gap in in between ancient interests and concerns and modern interests and, and concerns, um, and so it's a reminder that we're holding in our hands a very ancient document. Uh, when we hold the New Testament and and read it, thank you for the question. And a second question: How can the loss of the life of an unbeliever be useful in God's plan when it only brings sorrow? Knowing what we know as a Christian. Thank you for the question. This is not my custom, but I hope you would uh, not mind if I pray um, in response to this question. Father, I am wanting to answer this question in a way that is helpful in a way that is wise and in a way that does not say something foolish or say too much or say something unclear or hurtful. I I ask you to help me in my words. Amen. This is a question that I think is not only an intellectual question, it's a profoundly emotional question. And I think that as I as I read the New Testament, God has given us clear words reflecting the urgency to trust and believe in Jesus Christ. And he, he speaks to you. He speaks to all those who read it. Words of, of urgency, a call, a call. I believe it is unhelpful to take. The words that God has given to me and to then make definite assertions as though we had God's knowledge about the eternal state of people. I believe we need to hold these things in tension. Jesus says that those who do not believe the wrath of God abides on them and we believe that in, in, in this church we believe that it is a the warnings are, are, are so very clear and earnest and clear and we're meant to receive them we're meant to believe them it's meant to drive us in, like the shepherds going out, speaking the news of the Savior who has come. And so let those words that he has given have their effect. Let them place within us a kind of, a kind of drive to move outward and to speak. Let that be the effect Let that be the effect. I wish I could answer your question with a better preparation, and I, I regret what I am um, what able to offer. And so, But I would like to end there and invite uh, Kiernan to lead us in a prayer of reflection. Thank you.